I invite you to turn in God's Word to Daniel chapter 3. I mentioned a bit ago that I was trying to sneak in four messages on these first four chapters of Daniel. And uh, I'd like to continue that here with Daniel chapter 3, which I've reserved for this occasion, a profession of faith. So it seems fitting here as we look at the confession made by Daniel's three friends here. So Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3, verse 1, the very word of the Lord. And uh, again, the setting here is uh, Daniel and his friends are in captivity in Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. He's carried some home captive. And uh, at some point, he'll destroy Jerusalem. But here we are in Babylon. Daniel 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. 
And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded that certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace, and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who have trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing with a word of prayer. O Father in heaven, who does great and wondrous things, before you we bow, thankful for the faith you give your people, the faith you preserve, and the faith that you defend. Would you come near to us today to minister to our faith, or where it does not exist to impart faith, that we, through our Lord Jesus Christ, may count your kingdom and your loving kindness better than life. In Jesus' name we pray that help. Amen. Well, the story, brothers and sisters, congregation of Christ, could have gone very differently, right? If God wanted to glorify his great name, 
in Babylon before the, the superpower of the world, he could have done it differently. He could have sent an angel from heaven, as they were all gathered on the plains of Dura there, to strike Nebuchadnezzar dead. That would have probably stopped the music. And God has done things like that in the Bible. Or he, he could have sent some lightning bolts from heaven in the midst of their worship and exploded that statue. And that would have got attention. But what God chooses to do is to be magnified in the confession of three humble servants. This is extraordinary. This is extraordinary. As we in our culture, we often say, Lord, why don't you you take care of this? Why don't you fix this? Why don't you send power from heaven and do something? And God says, I am doing something. I'm magnifying my name through the faithful testimony of my servants. We tend to think things like we witnessed this morning, professions of faith are, are rather routine and unusual, and we are tempted to take them for granted. But the confession of faith is a gift of Christ Jesus, preserved by Christ for the glory of God. And all over the face of the world, God is preserving that profession in the face of hostility and enmity and persecution for the glory of his name. It matters to God what Nate and Jing did this morning. And they are urged to press on in that confession, to hold fast. And it matters to God that that two daughters are marked out, set apart from the world as members of Christ's church, holy unto the Lord, and called to grow up to profess the name of Jesus in this world. It matters to God. Putting his people into difficult places to confess his name is not the tragic accident of history. It's the wisdom of the divine plan of God. And that should change, I think, how we at times view ourselves and our culture. God wills to be glorified in a faithful confession of Christ Jesus. Let's look at this story in Daniel 3 this morning and notice, first of all, this pressure. This pressure to bow down and then give some attention to the strength that God imparts the strength to stand, and then finally consider the wonder that our Savior, our Savior, even in the fire, is with us. So the pressure to bow down, the strength to stand, and finally the Savior who is with us. Well, the pressure comes as they're gathered there before King Nebuchadnezzar. He has has erected a big gold statue. Boys and girls, it's, it's 90 feet high, right? 90 feet high. I don't know how tall the ceiling is. Is it 20 some, 30 feet? So the statue is like three times as tall as our our church and nine feet wide, and it's all gold. It's it's glorious before the eyes of men. And Nebuchadnezzar says, we're going to have a dedication ceremony, inviting all my officials, and they're coming to the statue that I set up. In fact, the the writer of of Daniel 3 is, is mocking, I think. If you say, why does it keep saying, Nebuchadnezzar set him up, Nebuchadnezzar set him up? It's making a point. This is not a God. This is the creation of man. And then it keeps talking about all these satraps and administrators, and then it says it again, and then it talks about all these instruments, and it says it again, and it's, I think it's mocking all the pomp and ceremony. This is a glorious occasion in the eyes of man. 
Nebuchadnezzar hasn't learned anything, apparently, since chapter 2, when he had the dream of a statue, a head made of gold, and then, remember, diminishing metal, silver, bronze, and all the way down to iron and clay, and then the rock that smashes it, and the rock fills the whole earth, and Daniel interprets the dream that God's kingdom is going to destroy men's kingdom, and it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of chapter 2, is humbled by that, but now... Well, his campaigns have gone very well. He's taking over the world. He's annexing country after country. He doesn't like the idea maybe that his kingdom is of gold and it's going to pass away. No, I'll make a statue of all gold. It's going to last forever. Somebody suggested if he had a humble heart, he would have built the statue that he dreamed about, head of gold and silver, bronze, iron, clay, and then he would have set a big rock next to it to remind everybody the kingdoms of men do not last Well, that's not what he does. He wants everyone united here to bow before his statue, which symbolizes the glory of Babylon, really the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. So all his dignitaries come. You can imagine them all arrayed in their uniforms and and suit coats and all of this. And they're assembled here, this great orchestra that's going to play, and they're going to bow down, and they're all commanded to do what? They're commanded to worship to fall down and worship. And the way Nebuchadnezzar secures worshipers is by threats. If you don't do this, you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. Contrast that with the way Jesus Christ gains worshipers. To be sure, there are threats. If you resist Christ, you'll be destroyed. But worshipers are gained by the preaching of the gospel. But your Savior says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Christ seeks willing worshipers. But the kings of men need threats. Yes, enticements sometimes, temptations, pleasures of the flesh, but then the threats. And so we see them growing today, don't we, the threats, as we're all summoned to bow down to the rainbow flag. Beware the threats. Beware the threats. It's rather remarkable what's happened in our culture. We have gone from the demand for respect for alternative ways of living to now the demand to fall down in worship and to say what we're doing is good. Culture is moving at a rapid pace, isn't it? Al Mohler, in his book, The Gathering Storm, he, he traces briefly the, the movement from the development of oral contraception in the 60s to the separation then of sexual intimacy from marriage and childbearing and that responsibility of family, to then the Supreme Court decision in the 70s to permit and grant access or um, rights of abortion to all, to where we are today with, with marriage being reimagined and redefined, sexuality being reconfigured, and now gender being Reordered. He writes, the revolution is a sexual one, and it is indeed a revolution, demanding the complete reordering of society and civilization. The revolution demands not only equality, but also the suppression of divergent worldviews, namely the Christian worldview. It's growing louder, isn't it? The call for unconditional surrender, to bow down before man's creation. How long 
Will the church in America have freedom to preach the gospel uninhibited? How long till this book will be called hate literature? How long will the church be able to uphold membership requirements and vows? We don't know. Pray God will preserve and have mercy. But if there's one thing that's become clear in the midst of all this, it's that you can't serve two masters, right? I mean, for a long time, Satan's game in America was to say, look, you can have Jesus on Sunday and all that, get to go to heaven, and you can have your empire over here. You can have the American dream and riches and all that you want. And now suddenly somebody's saying, no, you've got to choose. You've got to choose. Already in Canada, conversion therapy is banned and threats are made of fines and imprisonments to the church. Well, how would Daniel's three friends do? They don't know how much time has elapsed between Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, but presumably these are still three young men. How will three young men do in the midst of the pressure cooker of the Babylonian Empire and the mighty coercion to bow down? And we ask, don't we, how will the next generation of the church and the one after that do? Will the church stand? Against the onslaught. For some time now, sociologists have spoken of what some have called delayed adolescence or the failure to launch. Not all sociological observations are useful, but, but sometimes they're, they're reminders to us, even in the church, of certain things. It is noteworthy that at a young age, children are sexualized in our culture, but then marriage is greatly, greatly delayed. This will have catastrophic effects. In a book by John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel called The Practical Guide to Culture, they, they talk about this delayed adulthood, and they quote Diana West, whose book on the subject begins with this sentence. She writes, this is her first line, Once there was a world without teenagers. Once there was a world without teenagers. Not that there was a time when there weren't people in the age bracket of teenagers, but once there was a time when there was no such thing as teenagers. It wasn't its own bracket of culture, right? There were two groups. There were children and there were adults, and the children imitated adults, and they sought to become adults. But now we've entered this age where we have this youth culture with its, its own entertainment, its own music, its own, its own dress code, its own norms. We have a youth culture. The marketing moguls have caught on in a big way. And the object now is to enter that adolescence, that youth culture, as soon as possible in life, preteen and so forth, and then to stay in that group as long as possible. In fact, in many ways, adolescence is actually now the goal of our culture. One writer puts it like this, For the first time in human history, the young have become a model of emulation for the older population, rather than the other way around. Culturally speaking, be that in terms of dress codes, mentality, lifestyles, and marketing, the world that we live in is astonishingly youthful and in many respects infantile. So the taking up of responsibility... the choosing a career path, taking on the responsibility of a family and so forth are things that are more and more delayed. And in fact, those who have taken on those responsibilities are often getting rid of those responsibilities 
so they can go back to serving self, to having fun, to entertaining themselves to death, to being without responsibility. Even the homelessness that's around us here in Salem is noteworthy in how many strong young men are involved. And I've spoken to some in our parking lot here who are quite content with a life without responsibility. Rise up, O men of God. The church needs to encourage children to maturity in Christ. Now, the world's against them. The world will chastise it. If our boys try to become men, they'll be called uh, engagers of toxic masculinity and so forth. But there is something about growing up to be men and women. And the church and parents were called to help them onto that. In an article in a magazine by Philip Teffler, a man who grew up playing video games and now looks at it a bit differently, he he warns of some dangers about the misuse of video gaming. And he, he, has, a, he has five concerns, like um, the content of some games, the time that gets devoted or wasted on them, the addictive quality, the escapism from reality. But his, his biggest concern is, quote, the false sense of accomplishment that video games foster. The false sense of accomplishment that video games foster. And he talks about how it is with young men. They may, they may go on a video game to build the kingdom and rescue a damsel in distress and manage resources and all these things and feel like they've really done something when in reality, they've done nothing. It's all on a screen. Christ wants to make real, living soldiers in his kingdom take up responsibility, who, who grow in conviction who take a stand, who live for him. You see, in a video game, it doesn't involve risk. It doesn't re- require exhaustive effort. It doesn't require you to interact with difficult people. It doesn't require you to say, I am weak, Lord Jesus, I need your help. Christ wants soldiers, and he makes them. How can the Christian adults help the Christian children? Well, We need to teach them to see the real enemies in life. It's not on a screen. It's in our heart, sin, our sin nature. It's it's the temptations of the world. It's the assault of the evil one. We need ourselves, perhaps, to repent of all the places that we have reverted to adolescence and cast off responsibility. Happens in the church, too, doesn't it? Nobody wants to take up responsibility. It's not my job. I don't want to do that. I don't have time for that. As we carve out more and more time for recreation and entertainment, but we're to have a zeal for Christ's kingdom, a zeal for the promotion of his cause, a zeal for evangelism. We're to be servants awaiting our master's return. We're to, we're to live as the warriors of his kingdom. We're to do that not just on the big public stage where we have our, our hero moment like these three young men do. It's, it's in the day-to-day grind. It's in the little things, living for Jesus The pressure will be there, and we'll be tempted to shrink back. It's always easier, right? It's always easier to shrink back, to go into hiding, to go to a safe place. But Christ has set us in the world to confess his name. And by his grace, there's not just the pressure to bow, but notice, secondly, there is the strength to stand. The strength to stand. Christ's kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and 
he leads his people to know that and to stand firm. Now, it's not that Daniel's three friends, you know, make an obnoxious scene, we don't presume. It's not that believers have to, have to go around trying to stir up controversy. But if all you do is stand when everyone else kneels down, you're going to be noticed, right? If all you do is stand when everyone else kneels, I mean, just picture the scene, thousands of worshipers, and they all go down. Who are those three guys? What are they doing? And it's the, the nail that sticks out that gets hammered down, isn't it? King is furious, calls for them, he issues his ultimatum. Taunts the Lord, who's going to deliver you from my hand? What God could do that? Now, it's interesting what's at stake here. One, one writer makes the point that what we have here, what we have here is the question, will the image of God, these three men, bow to the image of man? Nebuchadnezzar has set up the image of man. God created man in his image, and in Jesus Christ, he's renewing that image. So you've got three men who are being renewed in Christ, images of God. Will they bow to man's image? Now, this wasn't the first time the question was asked. It's been asked for hundreds of years in Israel, and the answer is they will bow, and that's why there's captivity, and that's why Nebuchadnezzar has been beating up on the church, because they worshiped idols. But God did not give up on his work of salvation. He preserved a remnant for himself. Here are her three youths of, of Jerusalem who are strong in the Lord, remade in Christ Jesus. The Lord is building a church for himself. And we, we rejoice this morning that Christ is still building a church. It would be wrong to read Daniel 3 and to say, Oh, my, what, what glorious men you, you three are. We worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, of course not. These are weak sinners left to themselves. They would have surely bowed. But what we see here is the work of the Lord in their lives, who sustains them. And they respond to the king as he orders for them to come before him. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, we we don't have a need to answer you. We don't need to make excuses for what we've done. We don't need to apologize for not bowing down. And what God will deliver us? Well, that's easy. Our God will deliver us if he so pleases. To rescue us from the fire, he'll do that. But if not that, he's going to glorify his name in the way he pleases. These men give evidence they belong to a different kingdom, don't they? None of us of ourselves can withstand the temptation to bow down, but Jesus Christ went into the wilderness to win the fight for us. And when Satan said to him, I'll give you all the kingdoms if you just bow down and worship me, Jesus, what did he say to Satan? He said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus Christ did that. Refused to bow, and that Jesus Christ lives in the heart of his people, and he makes us strong. Strong to stand for him. We need to know what to stand for, don't we? And so we, we need biblical convictions. One retired URC pastor said to me a couple weeks ago that he says there's a difference between watching Fox News and imbibing biblical principles. We shouldn't confuse us. You see, if you get conservative convictions by themselves, 
you might find some room to compromise when the pressure cooker comes. But if you get biblical convictions that this is what my God wants and I am sold out to him and his kingdom, then you don't see room for compromise. We need to know where the lines are from the word of God, right? From the word of God, we need to feed on the word and develop those convictions. I mean, it might have happened that Daniel's three friends would say, hey, you know, this is a situation we're in. We're in Babylon. It's a tough place. Uh, we're doing mighty work for God. Look what we are. We're, we're, we're officials in the kingdom of Babylon. We're having a good influence. And, you know, we worship our Lord on the Sabbath day. And now we're just supposed to bow down to the statue. It doesn't mean anything. We know it's just man-made. And so we'll just do this as a, as a civic duty, as part of our, our, our job assignment, so we can stay in a place of influence in Babylon. See how that goes? We can all find excuses. And if our convictions are not established by the word of God, and we don't know what God requires and what God forbids, then it's unclear to us. Now, there are hard questions to answer, isn't there? Increasingly so. For some of you in the workplace, what is the line? Where, where do I stand? How do I do this? But it's not political pundits that are going to show you the way. It's the Lord Christ and his word. And Christ makes wholehearted followers because he teaches us to fear not man but God and to count our life as nothing and the glory of God as everything. So that Paul in prison, remember he could write from the jail cell, Philippians chapter 1, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. It's my prayer. I don't know if I'm going to be executed or be released. But my desire is that Christ will be magnified in this body either way. We are to count the glory of the Lord more precious than our own lives. Do we do that? What are you willing to die for this morning? What would you be willing to die for? Would you give your life that Christ's name would be exalted? And if we say yes, is that evident right now in our living and in our commitments and in our service in the church of Jesus Christ? Are we living presently as if Christ is everything? And if I had a hundred lives, I would give them all for Jesus Glorious is the kingdom of grace. We have been made to love the Lord Jesus and to prize his glory over all the treasures of Babylon. And those who know that, who know salvation in Jesus Christ, then they recognize that, that there's a way to rejoice even in the midst of sufferings. The Dutch pastor Hermann Veldkamp wrote, This is the glory of the church. The church knows how to rejoice in times of oppression because she knows that sin, rather than the intense heat of the furnace, sin is what makes life so somber. Once we are delivered from sin, we are also delivered from anxiety and sadness. Then we know what it means to rejoice at all times. Can we be glad even in a broken culture? Yes, 
Because we know that the somberness of life is sin, but in Christ our sin is removed. And in Jesus then, we have a kingdom, we have a future, we have an eternity. We have a a Savior who's coming to restore, remake a new heavens and a new earth. The world can terrorize, the world can threaten, but we have a kingdom that lasts forever. And by that conviction, the Lord makes us stand. But finally, this morning then, we're not on our own, just with power to stand. It's Christ who is with us. Notice that finally, Jesus with his people. The furnace is heated seven times because Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Note well that when the world doesn't get their way with the Christian, that the niceties turn to anger and rage. And mighty men of valor cast the three servants of God into the fire, and the men who cast them in die by the flames. But then what? Nebuchadnezzar is amazed to see four people, and he discovers it's not so easy to wipe out the church. Not so easy to wipe out the church. The Lord is with them. The fourth looks like a son of the gods or a son of God. Who is the fourth one? Well, I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. He appears at different points as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But even if it's just an angel, in any case, it's a clear revelation that God is with his people and a clear pointer to Jesus Christ or Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has promised that he's with us to the end of the age and therefore we need not fear. Christ sends out his servants to all the nations with the pledge that he will be with us. We're not on our own in this world, not on our own in this culture. He's with us in the workplace. He's with us in our neighborhoods. He's he's with us at school. He's with us when we're ridiculed. He's with us when we're hated and despised. The Lord Jesus with his people. Now, did these three men deserve Christ with them? No. No. It's actually that they, just like us, can find in our own hearts the sins of the world, right? Could these three men be astonished? I can't believe they're bowing down to an idol. No, they just came from Jerusalem where everyone bowed down to idols. We are sinners. The world's sin is too much in us, and that should always give us humility and mercy, even towards our enemies, to know that it's not that we have made ourselves different from the world. We Apart from Jesus Christ, we're just like the world. We're idol worshipers. But it's the Lord who sets us apart. Jesus Christ is able to be with these three men in the fiery furnace because he will later be in the fires of hell for them. And he's with us today because he was in the fires of hell for us. He took our place and he bore God's curse on idolaters. He hung on the cross and he suffered. For our sakes, to take away our guilt, to reconcile us to God, and to secure for us an everlasting kingdom. And now we have the sure promise that he will never desert us. He may use the flames to change us and our circumstance. It seems that the men and their hair is unsinged, and yet the ropes get burned off them, apparently. And many times God uses the pressures, the flames, the trials to do that, doesn't he? To shape us, not to destroy us.
An amazing thing, Nebuchadnezzar calls the men out and discovers not a, not a hair on their head, not even a, a scent of, of, of smoke on them. The Lord has utterly preserved his servants. Does the Lord always do it that way? No. In the days of, of the reformer John Calvin, there were five young men who were in seminary and they were traveling home and they, a guy came beside them, pretended to befriend them, invited them over to his place, and I think it was in France, and he was a betrayer. He got them arrested. And these five young men were on trial for a year, moved from dungeon to dungeon. And, and Calvin and the city of Geneva and I think the city of Bern and all these officials are writing letters to this other town pleading for these five young men, but to no avail. They wouldn't budge. They're going to execute them. And so these young men wrote back, well, since we're not going to be preserved by your letters... Since then that he is pleased that our blood should be soon shed for the confession of his holy name, we reckon ourselves far happier than if we were set at liberty. For as he is true and all-powerful, he will strengthen us, and he will not permit us to be tormented beyond our strength. And after that we have suffered a while, he will revive, he will receive us into his heavenly kingdom and will bestow upon us eternal rest with himself. And the stories recounted how they were brought to the stake. And they went forward singing psalms and quoting scriptures. And the last words as they burned to death were words encouraging each other, stand firm, be courageous. And in that too, Christ was glorified. And in that too, Christ was with them. The Lord will do it in different ways and different times, but he will magnify himself in the confession of his people, so that your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Oh, all the signs of our culture say the day is approaching. However many years it may be, or however many days or hours it will be, it's all declaring the day is approaching. Master's returning. Brothers and sisters, may we be found faithful, faithful through Christ, not in our own strength. We're all weak, and we would all wither before the smallest threat but in the power of Jesus Christ who is with us, faithful to hold fast our confession without wavering. May God be glorified. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that gives us hope and comfort. We thank you for showing us what you're able to do. We thank you for revealing the way you are building a church and you are making faithful confessors and preserving them against the onslaught of Satan's whole kingdom. Oh, Father, we pray for help for those under severe persecution today in the world, and we pray for ourselves. For, Lord, we sense the growing hostility and the increased pressure, and we want to be found faithful. We are too weak to stand, but show us the superior glory of Christ's kingdom and give us to fear God rather than men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.